Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Tonight we'll consider verses 4 through 7. The passage reads like this. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That's where we stopped last week. We actually stopped in the middle of a sentence. So I want to review that again. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time, And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. In these pastoral epistles, particularly in 1 Timothy, Paul warns that the local church should first beware of false doctrine. And by this I mean any doctrine that deviates from the essential teaching of the faith. This will weaken our testimony in the world. There can be no compromise when it comes to the truth of God's word. Now, we are specifically told not to argue over trivial things, but doctrinal truth is not a trivial thing. And the second thing that Paul tells us that we should beware of in 1 Timothy is that we should beware of a failure in prayer. This will hinder both our witness to the world and our own spiritual growth. And it's the second thing that we're to beware of that Paul mentions now in chapter 2. And just as there is no man who does not need prayer, so also there is no man for whom God does not desire salvation. And if God desires the salvation of all, then God has the obligation, a self-imposed obligation to be sure, but God has the obligation to make salvation possible for all men. Now being careful to address the context here, the all men in verse 4 includes Nero. Let's, let's go back to the first verse. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And then following that, he speaks of kings and rulers and those who are in authority. At the time, context specific, that includes Nero. Then when we get to verse 4, who desires all men to be saved, that too, to put a face on it, has to include Nero, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We ought not to forget that. We, Dr. Geisler several weeks ago went to great lengths to show that all means all. Well, here some people want to take all in verse 1 as all, or at least all categories of men. But then when we get to verse 4, they want to change that all to mean just all the elect. But that's not what the passage says, and we've got to be careful as we... Do biblical exegesis and then exposition. I'm doing exposition now. I believe you do exegesis in the office. That's, uh, that's the way I see it anyway. But, but when we do this, we want to make sure that we, we don't twist uh, the clear meaning of a text in order to fit a theological system. It's not necessary to do that, and, uh, and too many people do, but, but some do exegetical gymnastics on this verse. And make it read, not all men, but all the elect. So it would read like this, um, in verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all the elect to be saved. Well, well, of course he does. 
But that's not what this verse says. To do that ignores the context in which Paul is requesting prayer for some men that few of us expect to see in heaven. I don't expect to see Nero there. Matter of fact, I'm going to go out on a limb, and, and I'd, uh, of course, you can't bet anything in heaven. I guess God wouldn't let us. But if I could, I'd bet you something important in heaven that we're going to look for a long time. We're never going to see Nero there. At least as best as I can tell from, from my study of history, uh, he never came to Christ. And I think that's, that's as sure of a thing as we're probably going to get when it comes to that particular subject. But the same person that Paul was asking prayer for is the same person that he's talking about, or category of persons, that he's talking about when we get to verse 4 that says, who desires all men to be saved. Uh, this means all men. Now, this is a difficult verse for many who hold to a real strong Calvinistic position. There's the strong Calvinistic position, and I, and I don't mean to misrepresent. I, I don't want to do that at all, but I'm talking about a position that some would call hyper-Calvinism or it might, might be called extreme Calvinism, is that God only desires the salvation of a certain group of people. Well, that's not what this passage says. The passage says God desires the salvation of all, and it makes sense. If God is omnibenevolent, if he's all-loving, then he would have to desire the salvation of all. Now, not all come to salvation. And that's a reality. It's an unfortunate reality. It's a very sad reality. At least that's the way God looks at it. And if God looks at it that way, we should look at it that way too. Um, this guy, Masawi, that they decided not to give the death penalty to, because if I heard right, uh, one, of the, one of the things that has leaked out of the jury room, it was part of the document, um, and I could stand corrected if other things come in the next few days, was because he had a bad family life when he was growing up. Because his mom and daddy didn't treat him right. So anyway, but 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 aside from that, aside from that, uh, this is a category of men that comes into the all men. Now, when I heard that, I heard a guy on the radio said say, uh, and he was reacting. I know that uh, that they we would like to hasten his his road to hell. To, to quote him, a very well known uh, radio commentator, not Rush, but one that comes on right after him. <laughs> John, you know, but, uh, but, and I understand the sentiment. Believe me, I understand the sentiment. Um, but God desires all men to be saved, so should we. And that's a difficult thing when we see the evil nature of some men, and women too. The evil nature of mankind. But we forget how God looks at us, <laughs> for we were still enemies. When Christ died for us. The same way that we look at Masawi is the same way God looked at us. We were just as evil in his eyes. Good little of us. Just as evil. So this is a very broad category. God who desires all men to be saved. And if it causes trouble with some of our Calvinistic theology, then we have to deal with that. And somehow figure out how that can be incorporated into the big picture. But the way we cannot incorporate it is to say he only desires the salvation of the elect. Because it doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the flow of the passage. We have to do exegetical gymnastics and, and score a 10 on it when we do in order to try to make that work. And it still doesn't. But God desires all men to be saved. The last part of the passage. And to come to knowledge. To a knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth is a prerequisite for trusting Christ. Now, salvation is not just knowledge. 
that's kind of floating around out there now. That salvation is not an act of the will. It's simply a, a response. It's an understanding of the intellect. And some good minds are starting to buy into this, and I don't buy into it at all. That salvation's a choice. And that choice, though, has to be made on the basis of propositional revelation that we receive from the Scriptures. So that's why he says to come to a knowledge of the truth. When he was standing before the truth, Pontius Pilate asked the rhetorical question, I think it was rhetorical in his mind, what is truth? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except for me. That's essential propositional revelation. There is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. He was who he said he was. He was, he was crucified. He was resurrected on the third day. He's the only way to the Father. He is, very, he, is, he is just as much God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's who he was, the God-man. And that's the propositional revelation that Paul is speaking about here. We have propositional revelation about Jesus that must be believed. But ultimately, never forget, we're trusting a person. This is a very fine line, and I want to, I'll introduce it now. I'll, I'll keep alluding to this as time goes on. We're not trusting the propositional revelation so much. We're trusting that prop, the, the person that is revealed by that propositional revelation. Christianity is personal. It's in the same way, we, well, let me put it this way because I see some confused looks. I love the Bible. The Bible is propositional revelation. It's God's divine self-revelation. But the reason I love the Bible is because it reveals a person. And ultimately, my love is directed toward that person. Now, I couldn't love him if it wasn't for this. You see where I'm going now? I couldn't love him if it wasn't for this. Same way with coming to a knowledge of the truth. When I come to a knowledge of the truth, then I realize that truth is about a person and I'm trusting him. If somebody asked me, why am, I, why am I confident in my salvation? I would say, I know in whom I have believed. I know the one that I have believed, and I'm confident that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted him until that day. That's why I'm confident. I know Jesus Christ, and I trust him to be able to do what he said he was going to do. That's, that's this po the point of this verse. Now, as we move forward, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, or men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, this verse is in no way taking away from the deity of Christ. Uh, Paul uh, makes that clear in other places. That's not what we're doing here. He's talking about the, the mediation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this is, there's not one God for the Romans and one God for the Jews and one God for the Turks and one God for the Indians and the Egyptians. There is only one God. And then there's only one mediator. Watch. People will say, you're telling me that Christianity is right and you've got four billion people in China that are wrong? I'm saying, yeah. I, I am, that's exactly what I'm saying. If Christianity is right, then you've got a whole lot of people out there that are wrong. But guess what they would tell you if you ever stopped to talk to them? They would tell you they're right and Christianity is totally wrong. We can't escape this either-or thing. We can't do it. It all boils down to either-or. It's not both-and. It doesn't work that way. And this verse is one of those either-or verses. There's one God and there's one mediator. And it's not Buddha and it's not uh, Muhammad, uh, it's, um, it's not David Koresh, it's Jesus Christ. Now, we, you either submit to that 
and trust him or you reject him. That's a very fair choice. But the reason it's a fair choice is because God desires the salvation of all men. You see that? It's, it's, Christianity is exclusive in the sense that there's only one way to get to the Father, but that way is open to everybody. For there's one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. When it says uh, a mediator, it means one who stands in the middle. And a mediator needs, in, in order to, to do proper mediation, has got to have the respect of both parties in the mediation. I've been to some mediations before over some, some uh, legal issues, and I, and I remember the mediator was a judge who actually was being paid, I believe, by both sides so that there would be no, uh, um, no, improper, uh, you know, no, no improper judgments that were rendered. Both sides agreed on that mediator. Both sides said, this is a fair man, and whatever he says is what we'll do. Then you present the, the uh, arguments, and then the mediator says, okay, this is what, and, and sometimes mediation is binding, sometimes it's non-binding, but if you agree to binding mediation or arbitration, then you say, okay, whatever they say, then that's what we're, we're going to agree to do, so we don't have to go to court and, and battle this out. Well, in this case, if, if someone is, is going to be a mediator between both God and man and have the respect of both God and man, what does that mediator have to be? Both God and man. You see? In order for him to perform the function of a mediator, he's got to be equal to both parties. Both parties have to have his respect. Now, the, the analogy doesn't fit because with, with regard to our model legal system, but, but the mediation part does. He's got to be equal with God. He had to be God. But he also had to be equal with man. Now, when, when it says he's a mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, again, he's not, Paul is not diminishing his deity here. He's, he's, uh, he is indicating that, that Jesus Christ is not only a mediator for one group, but for all mankind. And that's been said twice already, and he alludes to it even here. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says in that passage, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been a curse for, or perhaps even over us. In that passage, the Savior is pictured as standing over us, that is, between us and the curse of the law, in between that curse and between us, so that the curse falls on him, and then we're saved. Now, it is clear that this present passage, 1 Timothy 2.5, in this passage the concept mediator is even broader than that. Not only does Christ in this capacity restore sinners to the legal right, relationship to God, but he also brings them, brings us, to the knowledge of the truth and causes the testimony of this glorious truth to be born to all of us. So he establishes peace and reveals it to men persuading us to accept the good news, and then stands as a mediator then in this twofold sense. It's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom, again here's that word, for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Now one thing that this does not mean, it does not mean that since Christ died for all, that all are saved. It doesn't mean that. The scriptures are very clear about that. And that's not God's fault. That's our fault. Because there are people who just flat out reject 
Jesus Christ. But here for the third time that's stated, and actually the fourth time if, it, if we say that it's alluded to in verse 5, the, the, the idea of a, a universal kind of atonement is in view. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now this word ransom is one that I like to focus in on for actually, well, at least a part of the time we have left. And then I want to give you a general overview again of the, of the idea of, of how, how some believe in a, a limited redemption and others believe in a universal redemption and how that can actually work. And I'll show that to you. But when it says that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, there is some confusion about this. And there has been some confusion uh, over the course of church history. There is a, a theory of the atonement of Christ called the, the ransom theory of the atonement. And it goes way back. It goes all the way back to, to Origen, who lived from 185 to, to 254. So he was way back early in the church. And it advocated that Satan... Listen carefully now. Satan held people captive as a victor in war would hold people captive. Now, this theory, surprisingly enough, was also held by Augustine, which is an interesting twist in that Augustine is a, a, was a, an incredibly brilliant theologian. This just happened to be one of the areas where he uh, was, was off on. But um, it advocated that because Satan held people captive, a ransom had to be paid, but to Satan, not to God. You see, there's the twist, and that's the problem with it. In response to that view, it should be noted that it was God's holiness, not Satan's, that was offended at the fall. And so payment has to be made not to Satan to avert his wrath, but to God to avert the wrath of God. Uh, furthermore, Satan doesn't have any power to free men. He's, he's in bondage himself. He, his sentence has already been uh, pronounced. And it wasn't life in prison so much as it was eternal condemnation in a much more severe way. Um, but Satan doesn't have the power to free anybody. God alone has that power. So there are, there are many problems with the ransom view of the atonement. Uh, this theory is, is absolutely false because it makes Satan... It makes Satan the benefactor of Christ's death. It has much too high a view of Satan. It has too high a view of, of, um, of the enemy of the believer. The cross was a judgment of Satan, not a ransom to Satan. Is everybody tracking with me on this? Now, this is an old view, again. It was the view of origin. I, I'm embarrassed to say it was also the view of Augustine, but sometimes we... Slip up, you know, even a good theologian will slip up. But the teaching has been making a comeback today in, in our culture today, primarily because of the uh, television medium. Uh, and it's the view that is now held today by such men as Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, uh, Benny Hinn, and uh, Joyce Meyer. Uh, I quote Joyce Meyer, for example. She's probably, uh, along with Benny Hinn, to most of you, the, the most well-known. Let me, let me quote her, and perhaps you can see the view from her viewpoint a little bit better. This is quoting her. Jesus said, it is finished. And he meant the old covenant. The job that he had to do was just getting started. He really did the job the three days and the three nights he was in hell. That's where the job was done. He was pronounced guilty on the cross, but he paid the price in hell. 
In other words, under this view, Jesus died on the cross. That was the beginning of it. When he says, to tell us die, or it is finished, that was just the beginning of it. When he says, today you will be with me in paradise, he didn't mean today you will be with me in paradise. He meant someday you would be with me in paradise. It's just the beginning. And then Jesus, after he leaves the cross, goes down into Satan. And they take some passages from Second Peter and Jude to do this. He goes down into, into hell with Satan. And then Satan tortures him for three days. And that's the, the penalty, that's the ransom that has been extracted for our salvation. No, no, thousand times, no. And in fact, in the same sermon, Joyce Meyer went on to say the same thing that Benny Hinn believes and that Kenneth Copeland believes and that Kenneth Hagin believes, and that is that if you don't believe that theory of the atonement, in her words, you are not saved. Okay, so this is now, Augustine didn't teach that, by the way, but this is, this is the modern rebirth of this idea. And I wouldn't mention it at all, except for uh, some of these people that I mentioned are, are very popular in the television medium. And uh, uh, I pass a billboard every day talking about Joyce and some you know, book that she's written, and some of this stuff is really good. Uh, some of it's not. The more you dig into theology, there are some problems there. But this, this theory is making a comeback, and I want you to know it's totally bogus, totally unbiblical, totally false. It takes too, it's too high a view of Satan, and Satan wasn't owed anything. I hope in your theology you can see that. Satan's not owed anything. The ransom was paid to God. But the ransom was paid for everyone. Now, let's, let's spend just a moment, and if I can, I'd like to, to help address some of the issues with regard to this. Did Christ die for all, or did he only die for a few? And I was asked recently if this mattered. Yes, it does. The reason it matters is it goes to the very character and nature of God. That's, that's why it matters. The reason, and, I, and I teach um, a course at College of Biblical Studies called Theology 302, which, which is, covers sin, uh, homardiology, anthropology, and soteriology. And this is one of those discussions that takes the entire three-hour lecture when we discuss this. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it in about eight minutes, hopefully, if, if I'm on time tonight. But, but, but I, I think you've got enough of a, of a background. I, I'd like to just show you how this can work um, and how it works out biblically. So there's one view that's called limited atonement, which means that Christ died only for those who would believe in him eventually. We call those the elect. That's The, the, the salvation was only for the elect. Sometimes, sometimes uh, th- those who hold to limited atonement would prefer the term definite uh, redemption or particular redemption. So if you hear those terms, those are the terms that, uh, that sometimes in the literature is, is um, proposed. Now, there are a number of passages in the Scripture. One, one thing I want you to not do is when you come across a view that is not your own, that is, and it's held by other theologians that are strong theologians, Please don't ever leave this church and say, well, uh, Pink, Arthur Pink was an idiot. You know, because he, he's a very strong hyper-Calvin. He, he was not. And for goodness sakes, don't say Calvin was an idiot. Calvin was one of those brilliant men of his day. Now, we may, I may personally, maybe you don't, but I, I may personally have a, a difference here or there. But uh, I would have loved to have had lunch with him <laughs> and sat down and talked theology with him. Uh, so... Um, these, these men aren't idiots. They had great minds, and so there are passages that they use. You know, don't, don't think that they don't have their passages. I want, to tr- I want you to try to see how, they can, how these passages can be true 
and unlimited atonement still be true as well. Passages like the Good Shepherd passage in John 10.15 where it says, Christ laid down his life for the sheep. Well, that's true. That's a particular group. That's why they call it particular redemption. He did lay down his life for the sheep. And they would say that not everyone is included in the flock. And that's true. He laid down his life for the chief, uh, for the sheep. Christ gave his life for the church. Ephesians 5. Remember, we're, our husbands are, are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Uh, Romans 8, 32 through 33 definitely says he died for the elect. Therefore, they would say that the object of God's love are a particular group. And let me see how, if I could possibly illustrate it to you this way. I'm not going to try to, um, to draw the state of Texas. I won't do that, but let me, allow me to just represent it by a box, if you would, please. You want me to try? I'm not going to. Uh, okay, I'll tell you what. Let's do this. This will be better, because you're right. I should, I should be accurate. Let's take um, the state of Wyoming. Okay. All right. Actually, actually, that's not that's North Dakota. Let's go Wyoming. It's about like this. Now, if I was to say, if I was to say that um, that Jesus Christ died for all the folks that live in Casper, which is right about there, right at the foot of Casper Mountain, which kind of goes like that, but that's irrelevant. If I was to say that Christ died for all the folks in Casper, is that a true statement? Of course it's true. I I could even make a statement if I was preaching in Casper. Jesus Christ died for you. And they'll say, well, who? And I'll say, everyone that lives in Casper, he died for you. But is it also true? Could I also at the same time make the statement, Jesus Christ died for everybody that's a resident of Wyoming. I could make that statement. Now, does that make my first statement false? No, they are not contradictory claims. They are complementary claims. Now, it's true, Aristotle's law of non-contradiction, one of the first laws of logic, that opposites can't be both true and false at the same time in the same sense. Those are not opposites. Those are complementary terms. So just because Jesus died for everyone in Casper doesn't exclude the possibility that he died for everyone in the whole state of Wyoming. Make sense so far? Okay, now so far we've seen Jesus Christ died for the sheep, Jesus Christ died for the church, and we say, Amen. Jesus Christ died for the elect, Amen. He did. But let's look at some other passages that as well that would, that would seem to argue for a broader atonement. In other words, that would seem to argue for the whole state of Wyoming. We call that the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And this doctrine, as understood by evangelicals, means that Christ died for every person. That Christ's death has potential benefits for every person, but his death is effective. His death is effective only for those who believe the gospel. To put it another way, uh, Louis Frey Chafer put it this way, that, that the death Christ died is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. It is sufficient for all, efficient only for those who believe. It is true. If you do nothing with the death of Christ on the cross, it has no benefit to you. In order to to receive the benefit of Christ's death, I've got to trust Jesus Christ. 
Does that make sense? I don't, I don't think it's as hard sometimes as, I'm not trying to oversimplify something, but I also don't, don't believe it's the right thing to do to make a theological concept that's actually fairly simple, attach real, real complicated words to it, and make it harder than it is. Now, any metaphor, any teaching metaphor is not perfect. So, uh, so we can't go by that. But there are universal um, terms. For example, the term the world is used. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if, if you want to do exegetical gymnastics, you would, you would say that that means the world of the elect. problem is it doesn't mean that anywhere else. In fact, as John describes it, he says that the world is God-hating, Christ-rejecting, Satan-dominated. And, and this is the world that Christ died for. That's the same author. He says he mentions things like this in John 1:29, of course 3:16 and 17 is our passage, so we won't go to that one. But 4:42, and then 1 John 4:14. So these passages emphasize that Christ made salvation possible for all. Now I see some of your eyes are glazing over. I know I got four minutes. Let me let me stress why this is important. Let me let me tell you the bottom line why this is important. Because I want, to, I want to be as brutal as I can right now. Maybe, maybe this is what we need. If Jesus Christ only made it possible for a limited number of people to be saved, I'm going to look you in the eye and tell you right now he is not omnibenevolent. You could say he's fair. That's fair. But remember, we cannot rip out one of Christ's characteristics, one of God's characteristics, and leave the other ones. They all commingle. They all work together. You take out one aspect of God's nature, and, and the rest is not God anymore. Christ had to make salvation possible for everyone if he is to maintain his omnibenevolence. He could have maintained his fairness. That is true. But you can't rip, by omnibenevolence we mean all loving. You can't, rip, you can't rip love or goodness away from God and still have God. That's why it's important. Some people say, well... Um, Aren't you arguing uh, something that's kind of a moot point? Because if they don't take advantage of it, so what if it was made available to them? No. In order for God to maintain his goodness, he had to at least make it available to them. Otherwise, we have a serious problem with the goodness of God. And the way we get around that, the way some have tried to get around it, is redefine the goodness of God. Have you ever heard that? Well, that's just your definition of goodness. I had a long letter that was written to me recently about this. That's just your definition of goodness. I said, well, where do you get your definition of goodness from? Because then they told me what theirs was. It sounds nothing like any human being's definition of goodness I've ever heard. You see, while my understanding of goodness is not on an equal basis with God's understanding of goodness, it's still in the same category. You can't say what a human being generally recognizes something that's good and loving and kind is nothing at all like God's goodness, lovingness, and kindness. It's still the same category. So we have universal passages, certainly in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. We also saw at least three times tonight the word all was used. In 2 Peter chapter 2, 1, Peter indicates that Christ died for the false teachers in this context who are unbelievers who were denying the master who bought them. Referring back here, I believe, to the master who paid the ransom for them. The Bible teaches that Christ died for sinners. 
And the, the, the word sinners nowhere means the church or the elect, but simply all of lost mankind. Now, this is a difficult passage for those who are extreme Calvinists. I don't think it's a difficult passage for those who are moderate Calvinists. The Dallas Seminary has a moderately Calvinistic tradition, and this is where Dallas Seminary is moderately Calvinistic, that just because we say someone is in, in uh, Casper doesn't deny the fact that, that there are other people in Wyoming that are Wyomingites. In my view, and I'll close with this, in my, and, I, and I really do mean humble opinion because there are many wonderful friends that I have that, that are on the other side of the fence from me on this one. This is the passage. The passage, Second, uh, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the, this is the single most difficult passage for extreme Calvinism. It, you, you've got to do some things with it that you wouldn't like to do. And one extreme Calvinist said, I wish that passage wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> well, I can, I can see why, because it's very difficult for the view. Now, I'm not, I'm not, not again, I want to say this, because we need, we need to have the appropriate balance. When I, when I talk about disagreeing with Augustine on the ransom theory, uh, I, I'm not saying Augustine was a heretic, Augustine was an idiot. I'm saying in that one particular area, Augustine was off. Uh, because we're all fallible, none of us are going to have perfect theology. One of the ways you can tell is if, if your theology has ever changed. As, as you've gone down this road, this life's road, and, and studying the Word of God, is there anything you've ever tweaked? Now, I'm not saying that you, you change your view on the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the, um, uh, the substitutionary nature of the, of the death of Christ on the cross, the possibilities of miracles, the second coming of Christ. I'm not talking about that, those kind of issues. But if you've been a Christian for 25 years... And the view that you, all the views, I'm talking about all the views that you have right now are the same views that you had when you came out of Sunday school. You must have had one heck of Sunday school teacher. <laughs> right, John? They might have. Who knows? Maybe none of our kids will ever change their views. But I, I hope that we're objective enough that if we come across information that is, that is accurately presented fairly, and that's all, that's all I want to do. It, it makes no sense to misrepresent a view and then tear that view down. We call that a straw man argument in, in, uh, in, in logic and in debate. That's not what we want to do. You need to appropriately present the view, and then you give the, the arguments for both. I don't often do this. So you, this was a little different kind of lesson tonight, and um, I hope it was beneficial.